0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms.
2: Hub and spoke. Audio Collective.
0: My first few weeks at college were filled with feelings of extremity. The giddy liberty, the frightening disorientation, the dizzying dilation of the walls of the world falling away and revealing a larger existence. And yes, those are the sensations most, or at least many, have when they're first away from home living with strangers, responsible for themselves and yet so very irresponsible for themselves, overcome by new information, new knowledge, new people, and new vice. But I think the particular moment at which I arrived in DeKalb, Illinois, home of the prestigious Northern Illinois University, was especially severe. That moment was the first week of September. 2001. Okay,
2: I have got to interrupt you right now. Richard Hack, thank you very much. We appreciate the book is called Hughes. We want to go live right now and show you a picture of the World Trade Center.
0: When I think back on it, once I get past the tragedy and terror, I'm struck by how plastic the weeks and months after 9 11 felt, how protean the world was, how uncertain, how uh, moldable. I think one of the hardest things to explain about 90s America for people who weren't around for it is how callowly invincible we felt. Not confidently invincible, just passively, naively invulnerable. You can see it in almost any American film made between 1995 and 2001. Almost invariably, there will be some plot about the oppression of comfort, the intolerability of safety. Janie,
2: today I quit my job. (laughs) And then I told my boss to go fuck himself, and then I blackmailed him for almost $60,000 past the asparagus.
0: Your father seems to think this kind of behavior is something to be proud
2: of. And
1: your mother seems to prefer that I go through life like a fucking prisoner while she keeps my dick in a mason jar under the sink.
2: How dare you
1: say- So I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized, ever since I started working, um, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me that's on the worst day of my life
2: what about today is today the worst day of your life
1: yeah wow
2: that's it's messed stuff. So murder, crime, poverty these things don't concern me what concerns me are celebrity magazines television with
0: 500 channels some guy's name on my underwear Rogaine, Viagra Olestra, Martha Stewart fuck Martha Stewart The imagination of the 90s could think of nothing more awful than things being fine. Then, the wheels came off.
2: It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a
0: plane... Even in the middle of farm country, in a small college town, the fear of not knowing what was happening, of what would come next, was pervasive. There was this hotel on campus that was... I don't know, 12 stories high, something like that. Not much to write home about. But my dorm was practically next door to it. You could see it out the window. And for hours that Tuesday, me and a group of confused and frightened freshmen would look up from the TV news at that hotel, knowing in our guts that it was only a matter of time before it fell to. We were in a new place, a new phase of our lives, where anything was possible, but mostly in a bad way. The other thing that was different about that particular moment was arguably less dramatic. The internet. I'd had dial-up America Online in high school, and before that had toyed around with a number of early ISPs like Juno and GNN in the truly dawn days of the World Wide Web, but it was only when I moved into the dorms that I suddenly had at my fingertips a persistent and relatively fast connection. I think one of the hardest things to explain about the early internet for people who weren't around for it is just how limitless it felt, at times profoundly, at times ridiculously. I remember the first time I saw an ad on TV, a car commercial, that ended with something to the tune of, go to http colon slash slash www.honda.com to learn more. And thinking, why would anyone want to do that? Why would businesses need websites? It made no sense. Google wasn't a verb yet. My parents couldn't totally distinguish between going online and playing a computer game. It was a weird space you could go exploring for hours, and indeed, had to go exploring for hours if you were to find anything. Yet when you found something, and there was so much to find, it truly felt like you'd happened upon a secret, something apocryphal and shrouded. The internet wasn't a place to socialize, or to shop, or even to research or find answers. It was a cave, to spelunk, filled with broken and disjointed treasures. And away from home for the first time, surrounded by strangers, in a world suddenly primed for war and violence, I went deep into that cave. Beyond the caverns of All Your Base Are Belong to Us, us. down past the vaults of realultimatepower.net, through the hollows of timecube.2enp.com, all the way to the dark, damp corners of the deepest sub-basement, below the mantle of the Internet's early crust, to the Flat Earth Society. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Back in our episode on Columbus, Discovered, I said we wouldn't talk about the Flat Earth on this show because nobody really believed in it in the first place. That's obviously an oversimplification. Lots of civilizations and religions have believed the Earth was flat from prehistory onward all around the world. See what I did there? And while the hoity-toity sets in Greece and China and Persia and Europe and etc. may have known the planet was round, that doesn't mean that knowledge trickled down to the hoi polloi. But the contemporary Flat Earth movement, which I discovered back in the latter days of 2001, and which began an improbable ascension in the last five years, doesn't descend from the beliefs of ancient Mesopotamians or Egyptians or Israelites or Norse or Germans or anything like that. It doesn't follow in the traditions of pre-Socratic philosophers like Democritus or Xenophanes. Instead, modern Flat Earthers trace a much shorter lineage Back only to the mid to late 19th century. And the most important moment in the young history of the flat Earth is the fulcrum of our story an 1887 science experiment. This week's episode Reductio ad absurdum. What appealed to 18-year-old me about the Flat Earth Society was how totally flummoxing their arguments were. As I recall, at the time they had a web page featuring 100 or 200 such arguments that, they said, proved the Earth was flat. And if you were somebody who had never considered the possibility before or thought particularly hard about the shape of the world, those arguments could quickly overbear you. Because sure, you know the planet is a globe, but that's probably as far as it goes for you. You're right, but you're sort of uncritically right, you know? Which is totally understandable. There simply isn't enough time in this life to intimately acquaint oneself with the ins and outs of every last bit of well-established scientific knowledge. You just have to accept it. But that does leave you in danger, because someone who is the opposite of you, wrong but intimately and critically invested in their wrongness, has a strange sort of power in a debate. If somebody runs up to you and yells, If the Earth is round, how come I can see the light at Cape Hatteras from 40 miles away? What are you supposed to say? What do you know about North Carolina lighthouses, or the exact geometry of the planet? How far should you be able to see the lighthouse from? And how far can you actually? You don't know. You don't stand a chance. And the same thing goes if that person then says, how do you explain the Michelson-Morley experiment of 1887, which showed the Earth isn't moving through space? What would you say to that? Where would you even begin? Well, there are a number of places, honestly. We're going to have to slingshot back and forth in time over the course of this story, but our first stop will be the ancient Greek city of Acragus, on the island of Sicily, in around 450 B.C. This is the home territory of one of the most predominant and wildest of the pre-Socratic philosophers, Empedocles. We've talked about Empedocles before, but pretty briefly and a good while back, so we're going to turn this soil over again. For all his influence, and holy crap, this guy had a lot of influence, there isn't a whole lot of good information to be had about Empedocles. Of his own writing, only fragments remain. Few enough that whether they came from one or two works is hopelessly difficult to pin down. He was probably born around 494 BC and died... Well, let's save that. The Greek biographer Diogenes Laertes tells us he was serious and pious, that he was a defender of the poor and a gadfly to the rich, and that at one point he was offered the crown to the city and humbly, wisely declined. In addition to his philosophizing, he was a prominent statesman, a poet to rival Homer, according to our buddy Aristotle, the father of oratory and rhetoric, also according to Aristotle, and, most especially, a healer. But beyond any of that, Empedocles was... What's it called? A lunatic. In just the few fragments of his writing that still exist, he manages to say that he is a living god. Several times. More than three! And really, more than zero is a bad number of times to call yourself a living god. Anyway, talk is cheap. The point isn't that Empedocles called himself a living god. Anyone can do that. The point is that he threw himself into a volcano. And that is how he died around 434 BC. Why, you may ask, did he throw himself into a volcano? Good question, good question. And maybe I should put a little asterisk there. He may have thrown himself into a volcano. His detractors give a couple different explanations for why he'd have jumped into the fires of Mount Etna. Maybe he was looking to dispose of his own remains so that nobody could say he was human. Or maybe it was a very flawed attempt to prove he was immortal. His supporters, conversely, thought disappearing beneath the molten magma was pretty convincing evidence that he was a god. The Greek historian Timaeus, though, said the debate about why Empedocles jumped into the volcano was moot, because he didn't. Timaeus had Empedocles leaving the city of Sicily around 446 BC, visiting Athens, Olympia, and never returning. But then where did he end up, Timaeus, and how did he die? No answer? Then volcano it is, jackass. However he died, Empedocles lived on mainly through his ideas. He's one of the first people to write about an eternal soul, one of the first Westerners to propose reincarnation. Most famously, it was Empedocles who proposed that all things are made up of four elements. Earth, water, fire, and air. Dry, wet, hot, cold. Everything composed of some proportion of those fundamental and unchanging substances. Everything, including, and we're getting close to the point here, so let's have a music cue at the ready, Everything, including the eye. Empedocles is the first person in the written record to have thought seriously about vision and perception. In fact, he's the first person in the written record, and this is truly mind-boggling, to use colors as adjectives. I just think about that. Before Empedocles, if you were trying to describe the color of something, you had to use a simile or other art. Homer, when describing the sea, had to call it wine-faced or wine-dark. We don't have time to get into why Homer thought the ocean was red, apparently. But he couldn't just say the sea was red. It's really difficult to swallow this, I know. But in some sense, at least semiotically, objects weren't defined by their color until Empedocles. In fact, most of Empedocles' predecessors, like Parmenides, assumed color was an illusion and cautioned that if you thought of milk as white or the sky as blue, you were being fooled. But Empedocles thought of the color of a thing as intrinsic to it, as a result of its elemental makeup. And on the same line, he thought that our experience of color was intrinsic to vision. You'd think that everybody who was ever sighted must have wondered how that sight worked, and that must be true to some extent. But just like with color, Empedocles is the first person in the written record to have really worked to put together a systemic explanation for how we see. And that explanation was as important as it was wrong. Empedocles said that Aphrodite, goddess of love, Gave us sight by putting a sort of torch composed equally of all four elements within our eyes. When you open them, Empedocles said, your eye torches shoot out a long beam which interacts with the colored elements of the things in front of you, causing you to see them. It sounds a bit like sonar, or echolocation, but not quite. In Empedocles' reasoning, the beam doesn't bounce back to your eye, rather, it forms a contiguous tentacle between the eye and the seen object. In the time it's taken me to explain this theory, you've probably already thought up a healthy list of problems and questions. Like, for example, how come you can't see in the dark then? And how come you can see far off distances immediately upon opening your eyes? And why can you see distant and near things at the same time? There's so many damning points to be raised against Empedocles' theory, and they all were. But rather than scrap it, most of the people who followed Empedocles decided the idea just needed a little amending, a little sprucing up. Sure, some pieces were missing, some stuff didn't add up, but the basic premise that we see via beams shot from our eyes was set to dominate thought throughout much of the world for centuries to come. After Empedocles, Plato picked up the inner eye torch he agreed with what became known as the emission theory of vision. But he recognized that something was missing. Light. To square the circle of why our eye beams don't work in the dark, Plato suggested that there must be two kinds of light. The active light that pours out of our head holes, and the form that's given off by the sun and candles and such. That light, which is to say, light, doesn't actually illuminate anything on its own. If a tree falls in the woods on a sunny day and no one is there to see it, it falls in darkness. In Plato's estimation, light is totally inert. It only functions as a catalyst, activating the true light shooting out of our faces. Most of the Greeks to follow agreed with Plato. Emission theory was critical to Euclid's work on geometry. Ptolemy couldn't believe that the eyes emitted beams. What a ridiculous idea. He knew that they must emit cones. Most of the people who come up over and over on this show, Galen, Hippocrates, Lucretius, Pliny, stand for emission, Which brings us to our oldest and bestest friend, say it with me, fucking Aristotle. Aha! Uh-huh. Not so fast, though. On the subject of sight, Aristotle rejected his teacher Plato, writing, in general, It is unreasonable to suppose that seeing occurs by something issuing from the eye. Instead, Aristotle argues for something closer to the truth, incrementally. Say that you look up at the moon. According to Aristotle, what happens is that the eye changes and takes on the form of the moon. Whether this was meant literally or not is a matter of intractable debate. So that part's funky but at least it doesn't call for any I-beams. Instead, the necessary component is light, which Aristotle chalked up as basically a wave that traveled through the air. Holy shit, Aristotle, I think you kind of got this one. I mean, with a whole bunch of exceptions that we'll come back to, but for now, take the W, Aristotle. Unfortunately, in this one case, out of all the ideas Aristotle ever posited, nobody much listened to him. So... I beams were the winner. There were some other dissenting theories, particularly from Democritus, who believed that objects radiated spectral copies of themselves, but for the most part, Empedocles, Plato, Galen, Hippocrates, Ptolemy, and Euclid emerged on top. I beams dominated the thought of the Roman Empire up through its collapse and then kept going. I know this episode is already a bit of a shaggy dog, and you have no idea how much shaggier it's going to get, but we've got a really quick talk about something that I think we've somehow avoided up until now, the transmission of the Greek classics. For how much Greek thought influenced and even dominated European thought for so long, it's hard to imagine that up until around 1204 AD, Europe mostly didn't have access To the writers and thinkers that shaped their philosophical existence after the fall of the roman empire the texts of the ancient greeks and the ability to read greek quickly waned from all points north meanwhile the byzantine empire and the abbasid caliphate had all the greek they could eat sometime in the eighth century the house of wisdom came to be in baghdad exactly when and how are disputed and the islamic world began a large-scale effort to translate all known works of human writing into Arabic and Persian. This vast accumulation of knowledge was the start of what is often called the Islamic Golden Age, when Persian and Arab science, art, math, and literature just absolutely dominated, totally flourished. And I mean, hey, it's not a competition, but it's not totally a coincidence that the same period of time is sometimes called the Dark Ages in Europe. And yeah, there's a lot of good reason to reject that term, Dark Ages. But when contrasting Middle Ages Europe with Middle Ages Persia, Arabia, and Byzantium, it is a pretty useful shorthand. European scholars spent most of the 8th through the 13th centuries picking over scraps of knowledge from the Abbasid Caliphate. The Islamic world had direct access to every idea or revelation ever thought up almost anywhere on the globe. They had Galen and Hippocrates, Ptolemy and Pliny, Euclid and Pythagoras, and yeah, fucking Aristotle. Europe, on the other hand, had to rely on poor and partial translations, from Greek to Arabic to Latin, none of which they understood all too fluently. Which is all to say that while most of the world spent the first millennium or more believing in eye beams they didn't necessarily believe in them the same way. In Europe, emission was sort of passively understood, like Plato's light without eyes to catalyze it. In contrast, throughout Byzantium and the Caliphate, it was a matter of debate, thought, conjecture, and experimentation. In the 9th century, the great physician Hobain ibn Inshak, the most prolific translator of the movement, and the father of Arab philosophy, Al-Kindi, both concluded from their readings of Galen that sight came Cyclops-style from the eyes. 150 years or so after they kicked the bucket, along came Hassan ibn al-Haytham, sometimes called al hazen He was born in Basra around 965, where he became vizier. In his downtime, he studied math, science, and philosophy, especially Aristotle. His hobby was trying to put together a square within an equal area to a circle, i.e. the impossible squaring the circle. At right around the turn of the first millennium, Al-Hazen was hired by Al-Hakim, the Caliph of Fatimid, for a terrifically ambitious public works project. The Fatimid Caliphate had its capital in the great Egyptian city of Cairo, one of the oldest and grandest and most important cities in the world. For all the time that Cairo had existed, its greatest strength was also its greatest weakness, the Nile. The waters of the Nile nourished the land, but they also frequently overran the banks of the land and flooded everything. Just as frequently, the river would slow and the farms around Cairo would dry up. Alhazen was brought in to fix both problems and regulate the Nile. He sold al-Hakim on a plan to dam the river, an idea that made the notoriously bristly Hakim uncharacteristically excited. So, al-Hazen moved from Basra to Cairo, where he got his first look at the great and mighty Nile River in all its broad and fast-flowing majesty, and said, Nuts to this! Al-Hazen immediately realized he couldn't tame the Nile, But he also couldn't disappoint Al-Hakim, a violent, megalomaniacal despot known for murdering on a whim. So, Al-Hazen concocted a third way, feigning insanity. Accounts vary, but he seems to have spent at least 10 years either on house arrest or in a sanctuary mosque, pretending he was crazy and waiting for Al-Hakim to die. When Al-Hazen wasn't fake gibbering to fool his watchers, he filled his time with a very amusing new hobby. Inventing science. Okay, yes, sure, that's an overstatement. But Alhazen was smitten by Aristotle, particularly Aristotle's embrace of empiricism. Frankly, Alhazen believed in Aristotle's empiricism a whole lot more than Aristotle ever did. While the Greek philosopher had argued that one should investigate and experiment and form their beliefs in accordance to the facts, he didn't actually do a lot of that? Alhazen, on the other hand, took to that idea like a fish to water. The duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning the
1: truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads, and, applying his mind to the core and margins of its content, attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself as he performs his critical examination
0: of it, so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. Is that too long to be my next tattoo? Gosh, that's right on. Alhazen took this adversarial attitude to all of the knowledge he had on hand, from Galen to Euclid to Ptolemy, even to his hero, Aristotle. He made the first real solid steps towards developing the scientific method and applied it to a plethora of fields, he discovered a formula for determining the sum of powers, figured out how to find the volume of paraboloids, he proved Ptolemy was right to say the earth was round, and proved Ptolemy was wrong about well, a lot of other things. And most importantly, he figured out finally how sight worked. Alhazen started with three sources: the physician Galen, the geometer Euclid, and the philosopher Aristotle. Galen was wrong about eye beams but he was largely right about the anatomy of the eye itself. Euclid was also wrong about emission theory, but his maths on the angles of rays of light were pretty spot on. And then there was Aristotle, who was wrong about a great number of things, but, Alhazen figured, correct in the premise that sight is a passive, receiving sense. No eye beams Through reading, thinking, and most especially experimentation, Alhazen made the first real, appreciable progress on the matter. He knew that looking into the sun hurt the eye, but didn't seem to affect the sun at all, which might seem obvious, but he understood this was a big problem for emission theory, which should have expected the exact opposite to happen. He also noticed that if you look at something bright, like the sun, and quickly close your eyes, you continue to see an after-image of it which further suggested light affects the eye, and not the other way around. No, it had to be about light. Color had to be passed through air as rays of light that were interpreted by the eye. This idea had previously been attacked as ludicrous by believers of the eye-beam model. If color passed through air, wouldn't the air necessarily become colored? Alhazen replicated the experiment of John Philoponus, showing that light aimed through stained glass through the color of the glass upon objects without altering the air it passed through. That was it. That was sight. I'm being very sunny here, because I really love Alhazen. A more level and respectful examination of his work on optics, the kind of examination he would have called for, would have plenty of criticisms. He thought the act of seeing still happened directly in the crystalline lens of the eye, not in the brain, and he was absolutely flummoxed by how beams of light streaming off an object at every possible angle simultaneously could be transformed by eye or brain into a coherent image. And his eventual attempt at explaining this is pretty unimpressive. But the largest failing of Alhazen's book of optics was that he didn't succeed in getting many to read it. Maybe because everyone thought he was insane at the time. I don't know. But given time, the Book of Optics did make it out into the world. It really hit Europe around 1250 AD in Oxford. A few years before, Roger Bacon had lost his job teaching grammar, logic, math, astronomy, and music at the University of Paris. With no job and no prospects, he busied himself at Oxford by reading every book on optics and perspective ever written, including Alhazen's. Using that as his basis, Bacon went even further, suggesting that the images taken in by the eye were sent to and decoded by the brain. Still, the eye-beam theory wouldn't die. It couldn't, not in Europe at least, because nobody was looking at the eye. As we talked about way back in Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, European Christendom was very deeply opposed to anatomy up through at least the 15th century believing that it was sinful to focus on fleshly pursuits. And so even the intrepid and eccentric Roger Bacon —did I mention he supposedly had a floating, fire-breathing, brazen human head that could answer any question? No? Oh well, there you have it. So even the intrepid and eccentric Roger Bacon was stuck reading Galen's descriptions of the eye's shape and makeup. That began to change in the 1480s with Leonardo da Vinci, who, along with his Renaissance buddies, threw over the anathema towards anatomy. Da Vinci came to studying the eye, believing in its beams. But after taking a few apart, he changed course. But Da Vinci's drawings of the eye, as revelatory as they may have been to him personally, weren't very good. They paved the way, though, and for the next 120 years or so, as the war between emission and intromission continued on, better and better models of the eye were built to wage it. The model that finally settled matters once and for all was by the great astronomer Johann Kepler, who figured out that the eye was a camera obscura, throwing an image onto the concave surface of the retina, upside down. The real near-miss here is that Alhazen had been the first person outside of Asia to build a camera obscura, and he'd experimented with it at length at the same time that he was writing and thinking about optics, but he failed to make the connection. But now it was here and the debate was settled once and for all. For centuries, artists had been crafting the eyes of their greatest subjects as larger than life to indicate the power of their glance. Soldiers saluted their superiors as a gesture indicating their penetrating gaze. Poets wrote about lovers' eye beams becoming intertwined, love at first sight. And it was all bullshit. Emission was wrong. The eye didn't spill out light... It gulped it up. Then what was the drink? That was the question that would eventually lead to the 1887 science experiment that we will eventually get around to, I promise. But first, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning again. After this.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you
0: get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling, with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you need. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like trauma, self-esteem, LGBT matters, stress, anxiety, or depression. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com/theconstant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/theconstant, and buy The Great Courses Plus. One of the many, many things I love about The Great Courses Plus streaming service is that you get to learn from actual experts who know how to teach. Unlike, I'm just pulling this out of nowhere, a podcast where a guy struggles to pronounce any word less English than boat. The Great Courses Plus employs real professors who have spent years studying in the field, and most importantly, they know how to teach and engage with people. I've been enjoying the course America After the Cold War, the first 30 years. It's a great deep dive into recent past, looking back at the political climate of the 90s, including the presidency of Bill Clinton, the conflicts of Bosnia and Kosovo, and the steady growth period known as the Great Moderation, which was set to go on forever, until the economic collapse of 2008. But with a vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. Maybe you want to delve into astrophysics, or learn to be a great writer, or maybe you're looking for someone to teach you how to practice mindfulness in these stressful times no matter what you want The Great Courses Plus has material for you and with The Great Courses Plus app you can learn anytime anywhere I love this streaming service join me and see for yourself sign up for The Great Courses Plus today right now my listeners can get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library so don't wait sign up today for your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant again that's TheGreatCoursesPlus, P-L-U-S, dot com, slash, the constant. Alright, let's remember where we're at and why we're here. Eventually, we're going to get to 1887, where a critical science experiment helped accidentally reignite the Flat Earth movement. We started the journey there back around 450 BC with the philosopher Empedocles and his theory that vision is based on beams being shot from the eyes. The garden path got us as far as the early 1600s when Europeans finally settled once and for all that this was very wrong. Thanks to a few very notable 17th century thinkers, particularly astronomer Johann Kepler and philosopher René Descartes, the western world finally understood that sight was the result of light entering the eye. But this only led to an even more vexing question. What, then, was light? What shape was it? And also, how fast did it move? To answer those questions, we have to reset. Back to 450 BC. Back to the island of Sicily. Back to Empedocles. We already know what Empedocles thought light was—the lantern of the four elements reaching out from inside the eyes where they were put by Aphrodite—but Empedocles also considered the shape and the speed of this inner light. The shape, he figured, was simple. Light was a ray, shooting straight out from the face. The speed, though, was a more difficult matter. At the same time Empedocles was thinking about this stuff, there was another preeminent pre-Socratic Greek philosopher at work, Zeno. Where Empedocles theorized that the universe was made up of four elements, and a couple of forces we'll probably get back to, Zeno believed in a universal unity, a monism, and that the seeming separation of things into parts and pieces and places was an illusion. To argue this idea, he composed a long list of paradoxes, the most famous surviving of which is called, variously, the dichotomy, racecourse, or Atalanta paradox. Atalanta was a mythological huntress who didn't want to marry, so she made a deal with her father that she would only wed a man who could beat her in a foot race. But no man was as fast as Atalanta, no one could beat her time. Zeno stops the story there and asks how fast that time was say that the distance from the beginning of the track to the end was one mile, and Atalanta could run 10 miles per hour. So, how long does it take her to run it? The obvious, i.e. correct answer, is that it would take a tenth of an hour. But not so fast, says Zeno. He notes, quite logically, that Atalanta can't possibly reach the end of the track until she reaches the middle. How long would that take? Again... Easy enough, a 20th of an hour. Okay, says Zeno, but before she can reach the halfway point, she has to get halfway to that. So how long does it take for her to run a quarter of the race? Don't bother answering, because Zeno's already on top of it. Before she reaches the quarter mark, she has to cross half of that, and half of that, and half of that, ad infinitum. So, to properly gauge how long it takes Atalanta to make the whole run, you have to add up the literally infinite number of discrete amounts of time it takes her to cross the literally infinite number of distances. So, Atalanta can never reach the end of the race. In fact, it's even worse on the Huntress than that, since her initial move can also be divided infinitely, she can't even start the race, and neither can anyone else. Motion, says Zeno, is impossible and must be an illusion. Empedocles hated this argument. And understandably so. Zeno's paradoxes are reductio ad absurdums, but they're very ingeniously constructed reductio ad absurdums, so trying to riddle out just why Zeno was wrong took up the mind space of a lot of folks for a long, long time. What was clear and irrefutable about the dichotomy paradox to Empedocles, though, was that it showed there couldn't be such a thing as infinite speed. If something traveled, it had to take time. And so, he became the first person to write that the speed of light must be finite. Unfortunately for Empedocles, though, his views on sight and optics represented a paradox of their own. If the rays shooting out of the eyes travel at a finite speed, then how is it that you can go out into the night air, close your eyes, tilt your head up, and the moment you open them again, see the stars? Shouldn't it take some amount of time for the eye beams to reach the heavens? And if, before throwing himself into the volcano, Empedocles pointed himself towards the grand view before him, closed his eyes again, and then again opened them up, why was it that he could see everything simultaneously, near and far? Shouldn't the landscape phase in according to how distant parts of it were? The emission theory was in a jam right out of the gate. It seemed impossible to believe both in it and in a finite light speed. And so, after Empedocles, adherents of emission theory pretty roundly agreed that light must be infinitely fast. The competing schools on vision largely shared that conclusion. Atomists, like Democritus, who thought that sight was due to objects letting off copies of themselves in every direction at every moment, had to also concede that these copies must move infinitely far and infinitely fast which produced a ton of paradoxes, too. In Aristotle's view, light wasn't a ray, like Empedocles thought, and it wasn't particles, like Democritus said. Instead, it must be something more like a wave. The idea of a wave would seem to necessarily imply a finite speed, but Aristotle says no. These light waves aren't actually in motion at all. Instead, they're some sort of constant omnipresence. So basically, no matter how you thought vision worked or what shape you thought light was, you were pretty well forced to say light didn't travel or else traveled instantaneously. Up until 1021, when Alhazen published Book of Optics. With his Aristotle, Galen, and Zeno in hand, Alhazen realized that his theory of vision, the largely correct one, demanded that light travel through space and that the promulgation of light must necessarily take some amount of time. But then how did he square that with the problems faced by Empedocles, the stars and the landscape and etc.? Well, Alhazen said, it must be that light travels so fast that it fools our senses into thinking it's immediate. Which is totally right, of course, but made no sense to most of the people reading him for many hundreds of years. When Roger Bacon made the same argument from Oxford two centuries later, it didn't matter that he wasn't believed to be insane. Nobody bought it from him either. The logic that had brought Empedocles, Alhazen, and Roger Bacon to their conclusion was quite strong, but it wasn't strong enough to overcome the evidence of the senses. No matter how anyone tried, they couldn't catch light moving. Kepler may have worked out the true nature of the eye, but he also couldn't see any way that light might travel. This seemed like a paradox of its own, one that Descartes could answer. He said that the light between an object and the eye looking at it must be like a stick. As soon as you push one end, the other end follows instantly. So, when you open your eyes to look at a landscape, there are thousands of sticks of light, each as long as the distance between the observer and the observed, and each pushing instantaneously towards the viewer. Descartes was so sure of this idea that he said, This seems to me so certain that if someone could show it were false... I would be prepared to agree that I know
1: nothing at all in philosophy.
0: Oh, René, why? (laughs) What an unforced error! Descartes wrote that dictionary definition of hubris in a letter to philosopher, scientist, and father of modern atomism, Isaac Beekman, in 1634. What Descartes didn't know at the time is that in 1629, five years earlier, Beekman had shown it was false. Well, sort of. It's, it's not totally clear whether Beekman actually carried out his experiment or merely proposed it. I'm of a mind to believe that he actually did the thing, given that he said he had gotten a result, but who knows for sure. Either way, the exact setup of the experiment is unknown, but involved a cannon loaded with gunpowder and a system of mirrors. It seems, as best I can tell, that the mirrors were positioned to bounce the image of the cannon around so that observers could view the flash of the gun both right in front of them and from a mile away simultaneously. Then they could record any delay and from that work out the speed of light. It was a really brilliant idea, except of course that, as we now know, light can cover a mile in 5.3 nanoseconds, much too fast to be measured by the naked eye. Yet, somehow, Isaac Beekman came to a result. He recorded that light traveled the mile in, quote, a 24th of a pulse beat, and if you're wondering if that was a good guess, let me tell you, it was not. By Beekman's measure, it took light approximately an hour to reach the earth from the sun, way slower than the eight minutes it actually needs. But the important thing for both Beekman and Descartes was that the philosopher had just staked his entire reputation on light being instantaneous, and Beekman had immediately peed in his soup. When Descartes was just a young pup, Beekman had been his good friend and mentor. But the years had already frayed their relationship, mainly because Descartes was an impossible dick. Like, just insufferable. If you ever play that game where you ask what person, alive or dead, someone would like to have dinner with, and they answer René Descartes, set them straight. Descartes was a self-possessed, self-obsessed, grandiose jerk. He didn't like to share success with anyone, and as he established himself in the world of philosophy, the common knowledge that Beekman had mentored him stuck right in his craw. Why would the great Descartes need mentoring? They'd already fought about music theory and corpuscular theory. We'll get back to that. But this, this was the last straw. Descartes threw out a harsh and stinging rebuke to Beekman's speed of light. It didn't make any sense. If the light that reached us from the sun were an hour old, then how did Beekman explain lunar eclipses? By Beekman's logic, the sun should be out of alignment with the earth and moon by an hour during a full lunar eclipse. But it isn't. Every astronomer in the world had carefully observed an eclipse and concluded there was no displacement. It was, frankly, a really good point. Descartes was the worst kind of insufferable prig, the kind who was frequently right. Unknowingly, though, his refutation had laid the seeds for someone to actually prove he knew nothing about philosophy, in his own words. The problem with Descartes' lunar eclipse experiment was the same problem of Beekman's mirrored cannon, and the same as every other attempt to measure light up until that point. Light is just way faster than their imaginations allowed. The sun is out of alignment with a lunar eclipse, but not enough that the instruments of the 17th century could detect it. If, however, you tried the same basic experiment on something much farther away than the moon, well, that would be different. And so it was. But for the time being, Descartes won the day. Yes, as far as anyone was concerned, light didn't travel. Even though lots of people were unnerved or suspicious of that conclusion, nothing could seem to prove it incorrect. In 1638, Galileo tried to detect light's travel through an experiment inspired by Beekmans. He trained two men to stand facing one another, holding covered lanterns. When one man opened his, the other was to respond immediately by doing the same. Once they got the hang of this game, they began backing up like a game of backyard catch. Eventually, they were signaling back and forth from over a mile away, but Galileo couldn't detect a delay, and neither could anyone else who tried it. Galileo was forced to unhappily conclude that light was either instantaneous or else unthinkably fast. Forty years after Galileo, things started to fall into place. Thanks to Oli Romer. Romer was quiet, sober, studious, and humble. Or at least he was compared to all the other loudmouths and narcissists in this frickin' story. Had he been a more braggadocious character, he'd have had plenty to pull from. Louis XIV hired him to build the fountains at Versailles and to tutor the Dauphin before returning to his native Denmark to serve as professor of astronomy at the University of Copenhagen and then the royal mathematician to the Danish court. Sounds kind of boring, but from there, he put together the national system of weights and measures, introduced the Gregorian calendar, and invented the first temperature scale, which Fahrenheit then improved upon. He invented and implemented the first gas streetlights in Copenhagen, and even commanded the police, which he entirely dismantled, firing every last officer. And would you believe it, this improved the city! leading to a better force with higher morale and better relationships to the community. Huh. Weird. Wish there was something we could learn from that. Oh well. Anyway, before that, Romer was hired to assist Jean Picard at Tycho Brahe's old observatory. Picard was working for the famed astronomer Giovanni Domenico Cassini, director of the Royal Observatory in Paris, on a very important project. Since European sailors had begun traveling long distances over long periods of open ocean in the 1400s, they'd had a problem. Well, they'd had a lot of problems, many of which we've talked about over the long run of this ridiculous show, but I digress. Nobody could figure out a good way to determine their longitude, how far east or west they were. Latitude was simple enough. You could get that by the angle of the sun at high noon, but longitude was much, much trickier. The only way they knew how to figure it was by pure estimation, or what was technically called dead reckoning. Basically, you knew how far west you were the last time you saw land, so you just guessed how fast you'd been going since then and drew assumptions from there. This frequently proved inadequate. In the early 1600s, King Philip of Spain offered a prize to anyone who could figure out a better way. It was intriguing, not just because of the money and title, but also because it felt like a good problem for the science of the day to tackle. Galileo, in particular, thought that he could devise a way with his astronomy. If the ship's navigators could look up into the night sky and watch when Jupiter's moon Io disappeared and then reappeared from behind the planet, they could check that against a chart to get their longitude. But Galileo couldn't quite get it to work, and certainly not at sea, were aiming a powerful telescope precisely at Jupiter for hours while the boat rocked was logistically impossible. But Cassini thought it was still worth a try on dry land and sent Picard to Denmark so that they could each keep detailed accounts of the precise times of Io's eclipses. This worked, but only some of the time. Part of the year, they could see Io going behind Jupiter, and part of the time, they could see it emerging. But for about half the year, they couldn't see either one, because Jupiter was too close in the sky to the sun. So, for more than a year, Cassini and Picard stared into the sky and took notes, trying to work out as much of what could be seen as... could be... seen. Apparently, Romer impressed his boss Picard and his boss's boss Cassini. When the mission was over, Romer returned along with Picard to Paris. There, he was assigned to keep working on Io's eclipses. And that is when he noticed something. As months went by of watching Jupiter's moon eclipse over and over, night after night, Romer noticed that over the course of the fall, they began to fall behind. Io goes around Jupiter once every 42 and a half hours or so, but in September, it was running about 10 minutes late. Romer quickly realized why. This was the time when Earth and Jupiter were farthest apart. The moon wasn't late its light was. Now, Cassini didn't buy it, and Romer's estimation on the speed of light based on his observations was still far too slow, but it was hard for anyone to deny for very long that light traveled, especially once Isaac Newton came along and picked up Romer's work, nailing the time it takes for light to reach the Earth from the sun to around eight minutes. Pretty spot on. Okay, let's Let's take a breath, huh? This is the last time I hope, I will have to remind you that we're here to talk about an 1887 science experiment that reinvigorated the myth of the flat Earth. So far, we've got about two-thirds of the information we need to get there. We know that vision is a consequence of light, and we know that light moves, but we still don't know what it is. Most of the people we've been talking about—Romer, Cassini, Picard, Galileo, even Beekman—thought it must be some sort of particle or corpuscle, as Beekman called it. Newton expanded and clarified this idea, calling it particle theory, and on his reputation, particle theory reigned supreme throughout the 1700s. But there was a competitor. Descartes had originally followed Beekman's corpuscle theory, but after he grew scornful of his old mentor, when he heard Beekman had died, he basically made a 17th century shrug emoji, he developed his own competing theory, What if light were made of waves? Robert Hooke had suggested light could be made up of pulses that spread like ripples in water. And while Newton was working on particle theory and measuring the speed of light better than Romer, Christian Huygens was getting even closer to the true speed of light and suggesting that it could be made of waves. Both of these theories had their problems. How could particles explain refraction? But if light were a wave, there was an even bigger question. Waves through what? Ripples on a pond travel through water. Sound travels through air. A wave implies a medium. It isn't a thing itself, but a motion through a thing. But light traveled through the deepest reaches of outer space, from the stars all the way to our stargazers. So what could it possibly be waving through? One last slingshot back in time. We're going even further back than Empedocles now, to the time of Homer. And forget Mount Etna on Sicily. We're going to the home of the gods, Mount Olympus. That's right, it's Greek mythology time, baby! What we're looking for here is one of the primordial Greek gods. There are really just so many of them. The one we're searching for is either the son of Erebus and Nyx, the gods of darkness and night, respectively, or else the son of night and chaos, or else, and this is my favorite for sure, the son of Kronos and Anarchy. Time and inevitability. Whatever his parentage, his name and his kingdom were one and the same. Ether. Hard to get a precise etymology for a word this old, but ether meant something to the tune of upper sky or pure air. This wasn't the regular old winds. They belonged to Aeolus. This was a sort of air of the gods, a rarefied substance breathed by the divine at Olympus. But it wasn't just air but better. It was its own element. Now, Empedocles had nothing to say about ether. To him, there were just the four elements and the forces that attracted and repelled them, love and strife. Yep, love and strife. Plato mentions ether once, but offhandedly, as if it's just really clean, like organic free range non GMO air. Other than that, Plato's on board with Empedocles. Four elements, no ether. Then comes fucking Aristotle. For a while, Aristotle agreed with his mentor. Four elements, no ether. But just like Descartes, Aristotle was a dick about mentors, so soon enough he decided four elements weren't enough. There was a fifth, or rather, a first. A prime, celestial, perfect element that filled the heavens. It wasn't like the others. It wasn't dry or wet, hot or cold. It didn't mix or change or dilute. It simply moved through the sky in circular flows, pushing the stars and planets along with it. To be absolutely 100% clear, like the element itself, Aristotle never called this substance ether, but all the other Greeks sure did. When the Romans got their hands on the idea, they gave it a Latin name, the fifth element, the quintessence. But for both Greek and Roman, this fifth element was sort of a curiosity, a footnote. When Europeans rediscovered Aristotle in the 11th century though, ether became lots more important because it helped explain two of the dominant sciences of the time, astrology and alchemy. The movements of the stars and planets had a large effect on human events that much astrologists knew. But how? If space were a vacuum, then how did Jupiter's retrograde motion carry its impact on us Earthlings? Ether provided an explanation. There was no vacuum. Instead, there was ether, quintessence, which pervaded all the heavens and even existed in some thin quantity on Earth. This provided a direct connection, a medium through which celestial influence could pass. It also meant that it should be possible to capture and purify the earth-bound ether, which alchemists figured would be very useful, and they worked obsessively trying to get some, believing that ether was critical to all of their other goals: panaceas. Immortality, the transmutation of lead into gold, quintessence was, forgive me, quintessential. The alchemical idea of ether fell out of fashion well before the four elements, and by the time we get to Newton, Descartes, Beekman, et al., even that was cast away. The atomists were in charge now, even if nobody knew exactly what that meant. But for those who believed that light was a wave, the ether, or something like ether, provided the best explanation. For what the waves were traveling through, they called this new quintessence luminiferous ether. Light bearing heavenly air. And even Newton and Descartes, who believed light was a particle, weren't opposed to this new ether in theory. Newton pointed out that if there were a substance pervading all space, it should eventually slow down the orbits of heavenly bodies. But he proposed some sort of local, earthbound luminiferous ether to explain refraction. Since Newton's particle theory basically won the day for the 1700s, luminiferous ether wasn't a terribly important idea, and it got buried with a whole bunch of other new ethers that were being hauled out to explain things like gravity and electromagnetism. Basically, ether was a god of the gaps, a one size fits all placeholder for whatever people couldn't otherwise explain. That all changed because of a science experiment. No, still not the 1887 one we're theoretically here to talk about. This one was done in 1801 by Thomas Young. Young was a brilliant English polymath who would go on to influence a host of sciences and ideas, but nothing could ever touch the experiment he conducted when he was 24. Young believed that light must be a wave, and he made a number of arguments in support of this view. None of them were anywhere near sufficient to unseat the great Isaac Newton, though. He'd need something more, something at once dramatic and simple so that it could be replicated by anyone, anywhere. And man, did he deliver. You can do this right now, probably, with just a tiny bit of work. The first thing you'll need is a shaft of light, like a sunbeam through a window. Then you need a wall for the light beam to hit. So you can see a spot of light on the wall, very exciting so far. Now here's the tricky part. Next, what you need is some sort of opaque obstacle something that'll block the light from hitting the wall. And in that obstacle, you need to make two slits close together. Then, you just have to put the slits between the light and the wall. Now, if Newton and the other corpusculists were right, what we'd see on the wall past the slits would be obvious. One beam goes through two slits, becomes two beams. But that's not what happens. Instead, What you get is one strong point right in the center between where the slits are pointed. And on either side of that strong point, the light fades gradually, almost to darkness. And then it starts to lighten up again to two more bright spots. And then it fades. And then it brightens. And then it fades. And then it brightens. And you get it. What Young's adequately-named double-slit experiment shows us is an interference pattern. If a light particle beam were cut in half, it'd make two beams. But a light wave that's cut in two becomes two light waves. And as those two waves continue their semicircular journey forward past the slits, they hit one another. Where the peaks of the waves line up, they get very strong. But between those peaks, the waves practically cancel one another leading to dark spots and a wavy continuum between them. With a window and a couple of playing cards, Thomas Young had just socked Isaac Newton, the most brilliant scientist of all time, right in the jaw. Light was made of waves. Which meant that there had to be something light was passing through. There had to be a luminiferous ether. And the more people learned about how light worked, the weirder the properties of this luminiferous ether became. When Young went on to demonstrate that light wasn't just a wave, but a transverse wave, it got real hinky. Longitudinal waves travel through gases and liquids. Transverse waves, as far as anyone knew, only traveled through solids. So somehow, the invisible ether that pervaded all of space was... rock hard? But it didn't drag or slow, or otherwise seemed to interact with any of the planets. So it was an... intangible solid? And it had to be absolutely still, stationary. Then there was another weird question. When you make a ripple in a still pond, it spreads out evenly in all directions. But if you make that ripple in a river, The movement of the water impacts the propagation of the ripples. The waves moving in the direction of the river go faster, and those going upstream move slower. The ether wasn't a river, it was the most placid pond imaginable, but the earth was moving through it, circling the sun like a cosmological stir pot. That meant there should be a sort of ethereal wind blowing over the face of the planet. Think of the wake behind a boat. And that meant that the speed of light traveling east against the ether should be a little bit slower than light traveling west. If you could measure the difference, you could learn a whole lot about, well, a lot of stuff. Planetary movement, light, and especially the luminiferous ether. Which brings us fucking finally to 1887. By then, the luminiferous ether had spent more than 50 years as among the most compelling and established ideas in science. Most everybody accepted its existence. They just didn't know how it worked, exactly. Enter Albert A. Michelson and Edward W. Morley. Michelson and Morley were the perfect team to finally get to the bottom of this ether jazz. Michelson had dedicated most of his scientific life to measuring the speed of light with greater and greater accuracy... Morley was a more all-around thinker, with impressive works in physics, optics, and chemistry. Together, they devised a brilliant way to compare the eastward and westward speeds of light, to finally determine how exactly Earth affected the ether as it passed through. Measuring the exact speed of light in two directions simultaneously with the precision necessary to notice the expected difference was, they concluded, impossible. The Earth goes around the sun very quickly compared to most things we experience, but compared to the speed of light, it was a tortoise crawl. So the differential between light speeds would be much too subtle for that sort of measurement. But there was another way. Think back to Thomas Young's double-slit experiment. The interference pattern of the two sets of light waves interacting with one another told Young what he needed to know. Maybe an interference pattern could teach Michelson and Morley about the ether, too. Hey there, I'm Dylan
1: Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: The setup was brilliantly elegant. From above, picture a large lowercase T. At its top was a white light aimed straight down the line. At the T's junction, though, was a beam splitter, a half-silvered mirror that cut the white light in two, and shot the two child beams off down the 3 o'clock hand pointed east, and the 6 o'clock hand pointed north of the T, perpendicular to one another. These hands are of absolutely equal length, and each ends in a mirror that sends both lights straight back to the junction again. There, they're recombined and bounced by mirror down the 9 o'clock hand, where they reach their final destination, an interferometer. The pattern observed in the interferometer would tell Michelson and Morley all they needed to know. The normal pattern of white light would be skewed, like the double-slit experiment, based on how much slower the beam facing east had had to travel against the ether compared to the one going north. They first fired up this device in 1881 at Case Western University in Cleveland and saw... nothing. There was basically zero interference. The two light beams were moving at exactly the same speed. that couldn't be. They checked and double-checked. They asked other scientists for help. Eventually, it was concluded that their setup wasn't accurate enough. The light beams didn't travel far enough to get out of sync. So for six years, they worked to develop an improved version. It was tough work. Michelson had a nervous breakdown over it in 1885, but eventually, they figured it out. The final experimental device was a lot like the original, but rather than send the split beams down to a mirror and back, they shot them back and forth over and over again, bouncing from one mirror to another, to another, to another, to another, before finally recombining and heading to the interferometer. And the whole thing was put on a sort of very smooth, lazy Susan, allowing them to get measurements now from every conceivable direction. They decided to take the measurements again and again over the course of months so as to rule out that the Earth might be temporarily in sync with the ether winds. From April to July of 1887, they repeatedly fired up the apparatus and took observations of the interferometer pattern it displayed. All the data, each and every time, showed nothing. No drag, no difference in the speed of light from one direction to the next, no ether winds. But what could that mean? How could it be? The world of science was rocked by the Michelson-Morley experiment and quickly proposed a number of explanations. Back in 1844, Sir George Stokes had hypothesized that Earth might fully drag the ether it travels through, creating a sort of parcel or bubble of ether that stood still around the planet. So maybe Stokes was right, except he couldn't be, because the ether had to account for stellar aberration and an experiment had already ruled out the possibility of complete ether drag back in 1851. Most of the other explanations required a near-total change in our understanding of physics, including the correct one, special relativity. Einstein's greatest contribution to science, well, one of them at least, that dude was something else, was largely devised as a solution to the problem posed by Michelson and Morley's results. And it changed everything. It overturned Newton, gave way to the nuclear age, quantum mechanics. It's also, arguably, the point at which science stopped making obvious sense. As we talked about way back in the finale to season one, Way to Go Einstein, special relativity is so contrary to our common sense and shared sensory experience that it's still not clear how Einstein made the counterintuitive leap necessary to figure it out. It was a shift in science so profound that we're still grappling with its implications today. And in addition... It totally did away with the need for a luminiferous ether. But there was a much simpler explanation for Michelson and Morley's results than all of that, one that didn't require us to fundamentally alter our understanding of the entire universe. What if the reason they didn't detect any movement through the ether wasn't because there was no ether, but because there was no movement? Because the Earth isn't moving, because it's flat. The modern Flat Earth movement had begun 48 years before Michelson and Morley's result at Case Western, at a utopian commune in the fens of eastern England called the Owenites. There, a young proto-socialist organizer named Samuel Robotham, who preferred to be known by the comic book supervillain knockoff name Parallax, set out to determine whether the Old Bedford River, a stagnant, slow-moving, man-made drainage canal, was curved or flat. Because it was artificial, the old Bedford was completely straight for its whole length. Parallax, I can’t believe I have to call him that. Parallax waded out into the middle of the river with a telescope, which he held two-thirds of a foot above the water, while a small boat with a flag mounted three feet above its hull rowed away from him. It rowed and rowed and rowed for six whole miles, until, by parallax’s estimation, it should have been well below the curve of the Earth if the Earth were round, that is. But, because it isn't, Parallax was able to watch the boat through his telescope for its whole journey. Parallax repeated this test numerous times over the years and wrote about what he saw, along with other arguments for his belief, in a book called Zetaic Astronomy, The Earth Not a Globe, which he published in 1864. Parallax had an undue amount of influence considering what he was saying, but it was still relatively mild. When one of his acolytes, John Hamden, made a public bet with the geographer Alfred Russell Wallace, and the two attempted to recreate Parallax's Bedford-level experiment, Wallace managed to show the river did go over the horizon and won the bet. Hamden, rather than tuck his tail between his legs, published a pamphlet saying Wallace had cheated. Eventually, Hamden was sent to prison for libel and for threatening to kill Wallace, Parallax had a nearly as ignominious public kerfuffle when he agreed to travel to Cornwall, where his opponents said one could point a telescope out towards the Eddystone rocks and see the lantern of the lighthouse just barely above the horizon, nine miles out. Anyone could pull off this experiment, and anyone still can today. But when Parallax trained the telescope out to the Eddystone lighthouse, he insisted everyone else was wrong and that he could see the whole thing clearly. The nascent flat earth movement continued to suffer embarrassing defeats over the decades. Yet none of these would put it to bed. Because the real evidence for the earth being flat was, to the believers, insurmountable. Inerrant, even. It was in the Bible. In the last chapter of Earth Not a Globe, (laughs) what a title, Parallax cited 76 instances in scripture that support the earth being flat starting almost in the beginning, when on the second day, God made the firmament, and separated the waters which were below the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. The vault of heaven, which God spread out above the earth, is referred to over and over again in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Job to Psalms to Isaiah. In Daniel 4.10, he saw a tree of great height at the center of the earth, reaching with its top to the sky, and visible to the earth's farthest bounds. The only way a tree could be visible from the farthest bounds of the earth, and indeed the only way there could be a center at which it stood, was if the earth were flat. And it's not just an Old Testament issue either. When the devil tempts Jesus in the book of Matthew, he takes him to a very high mountain where they can see all the kingdoms of the world. All the way until the end of the Bible, in Revelation, John says, He saw four angels stationed at the four corners of the earth. Most of Christendom, even from its early days, had believed the earth was round. And for the many who also believed the Bible was inerrant, this presented a fun puzzle for apologists to work through. But for folks like Parallax, that was all special pleading. The book is clear, the earth is flat. They just needed to prove it. Parallax's disciples continued on this way for decades, frequently embarrassing themselves. After Parallax died, his torch was taken up by Lady Elizabeth Blount, who founded the Universal Zetaic Society to spread his epiphany. For decades, the Society published a magazine with the very catchy name of the Earth Not a Globe Review. Lady Blount, not warned well enough away by John Hamden's example, renewed the Bedford level experiments again at the turn of the century. In Baltimore, English émigré William Carpenter published A Hundred Proofs the Earth is Not a Globe, a spittle-flecked gish-gallop of fallacies and disinformation. Naturally, Carpenter was also a mesmerist and a spiritualist, but it was the flatter stuff that really best defined him. The title page of 100 Proofs is probably its catchiest moment. It includes a sort of log line reading, upright, downright straightforward, and I kind of love that. It's downhill from there. Is that a pun? I can't even tell anymore. After a lengthy introduction, wherein he talks about the inerrancy of the Bible and attempts to relitigate the Bedford-Level folly, he finally gets into the proofs, which include such noodle scratchers as...
2: Number 8. If the Earth were a globe, a small model globe would be the very best, because the truest thing for the navigator to take to sea with him. But such a thing as that is not known. With such a toy as a guide, the mariner would wreck his ship of a certainty. This is proof that Earth is not a globe. Or... Number 17. Human beings required a surface on which to live that, in its general character, shall be level. And since the omniscient creator must have been perfectly acquainted with the requirements of his creatures, it follows that, being an all-wise creator, he has met them thoroughly. This is theological proof that the earth is not a globe. Or... Number thirty-three if the earth were a globe people except those on the top would certainly have to be fastened to its surface by some means or other whether by the attraction of astronomers or by some other undiscovered and undiscoverable process but as you know that we simply walk on its surface without any other aid than that which is necessary for locomotion on a place It follows that we have herein a conclusive proof that Earth
0: is not a globe. Leaves a bit to be desired, huh? But of course it does. The problem with Carpenter's book is that he wrote it in 1885, two years before Michelson and Morley inadvertently proved him right. If you've run across contemporary flat-earthers in a casual way, it's probably in photos from airplanes or balloons or the tops of mountains asking, where is the curve? But that's just a starter argument, an entre When you get into the real meat and potatoes of flat earthers, it's Michelson, Morley, and the luminiferous ether. Take what appears to be the largest flat earth channel on YouTube, Globebusters. Laugh all you want, they've got a lot more subscribers than I do. Oh god, my life. Anyway, if you go down the videos, uploaded by Globe Busters, we'll see a predictable litany of Carpenter-like proofs, along with a hodgepodge of random conspiracy theories, some New Age mysticism, and a great deal of blanket science denial. There's some stuff about the firmament, some stuff about Atlantis, some stuff about coronavirus, oh, of course there is, and a good bit about globalists. Pretty loaded term there. But what you'll see in surprising abundance is videos about Michelson and Morley, attacks on Einstein, and defenses of the ether.
2: And welcome everybody to Globusters. What is the Luminephrous Ether? I'm your host, Bob. Between
0: you and me, the Einstein stuff is my favorite because from video to video, they'll go from saying Einstein actually said the earth was flat and that the ether was real to the theory that Einstein covered up the true results of the Michelson-Morley experiment, an incredible feat given that he was eight years old at the time it was conducted. And
2: hopefully we're going to try and get some of this stuff uh, explained about the luminiferous ether, how it relates to uh, the manifestation of reality, how it relates to the Bible. The
0: Busters appear to have a religious angle. But it's anything but front and center. I'm not sure how many of their staff, oh my God, they have a staff, are even on that train.
2: Um, and how it relates to gravity and many, other, many other things. Um, it is kind of the one-stop shop for for all of our reality. And it is amazing how many things actually um, tie into it. So, um, I decided to cover this uh, a little bit further in-depth this week because, you know, we covered it some last week, and uh, I just want to expand on that because...
0: Back in the late 90s, the movement was still intimately tied to fundamentalism and biblical literalism. But since then, it seems to have become somewhat uncoupled. The Zataic Society always had to display a distrust for institutions because institutions contradicted their faith. But nowadays... Distrust for institutions is a motivating force all its own.
1: Hello, everyone. It seems that many of the new people investigating our flat Earth reality are unaware of the lies going around about the flat Earth, and that, that there are actually globe propagandists out there
0: trying to deceive you. That scientific bodies, government agencies, and ivory towered universities preach the globe is reason itself to be skeptical. And to me, That shift appears to go right back to the moment I discovered the Flat Earth Society. In those early days of the internet, where the best barometer for how interesting something was, was how hard you had to look for it. And after that dark day in September, when suddenly anything was possible. But mostly, in a bad way. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosever, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McCloud, and Anime Is Trash. Voice acting provided by Bilal Dardai,
2: Brendan Balf, Phil Ritterelli.
0: A special thanks go out to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible, especially Barry Vaughn, John, Chris Olson, Allison Von Horn, C.J. Snipes, and Wade Rausch, host of Fellow Hub and Spoke Audio Collective podcast Soonish. The latest episode of Soonish is about the disturbingly legion number of ways the coming American presidential election could go awry. It's vital and disquieting work. Check out Soonish wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up as a sponsor or go to constantpodcast.com to find and follow our various social media presences. And tell a friend. Let's see if we can maybe get to the size of globe busters. That's modest, right? That's a reasonable ask. You can help. I just don't think that they should have that platform. Thanks for listening. Be back in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, which can occasionally be seen from the warren dunes of Southeast Michigan, when there's a strong Fata Morgana mirage over the lake, therefore proving the earth is flat, This has been The Constant. All right, we're fighting a battle between background noise and heat. It is 9 in the morning, and it is already 86 degrees, 90% humidity. The birds are singing. The fans are blowing. It's imperfect. Let's try to record for a little bit.